Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, good morning. So glad you're here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 if you have your Bibles. And uh, we want to we want to share a little bit about the resurrection of Jesus and what it should mean for us. Outside Jerusalem, there was this um, this place that was reserved for public executions, known as Golgotha, and many criminals who many of them were had political aspirations of one kind or another. Some of them wanted to be uh, folk heroes, and uh, outside Jerusalem, in that place, they met their doom. These were hope-filled revolutionaries, many of them, and they were dreaming of a, a better world. And, and as they went to fight the powers that were at that time, Rome and uh, other um, other institutions, they they often met their doom. But uh, and so so when I say that Jesus wasn't the only one who was who has gone to a cross or went to the cross that day, there were two thieves that were crucified with him. And uh, though Jesus there is the only one who ever died without having sinned, he, he went to the cross not because of his own sins or his own failures. In fact, in, uh, I think it's in Luke, it tells us of the two thieves that hang on the cross with him, and, and one is railing accusations against Jesus, like, if you're the Son of God, get us, get us out of here. Um, we don't want to die in this way. And um, the other thief says, don't you have any respect uh, we're here because we deserve it. This man's an innocent man, and there was a recognition of that. But it's a it was a place of death and a place of threatening. And probably the most impressive thing about the events of Good Friday was the way that Jesus responded to his death sentence. We know from the Gospels that he set his mind, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing what that would mean, knowing that this was the time of his death, and that. All these things had somehow worked into the Father's plan for him. All through his trial and his conviction, he carried himself with this regal dignity, didn't he? That, uh, we find him uh, charged with crimes that he didn't commit. And the Jewish court uh, would have been, uh, it would have been um, wrong for them. It was wrong for them to connect, co- com- uh, convict the Son of God. They they charged him with blasphemy, and the Jewish leaders, they had no ability to execute people for this kind of crime, and his this kind of crime would never stick in the Roman court system, and so they had to find a way to manipulate Pilate against him, and so they charged Jesus not just with blasphemy, because Pilate doesn't care about blasphemy, he's a Roman governor, he's not a Jewish high priest, and so they convinced Pilate that he was guilty of insurrection, that he claimed to be a king, and he is a king. He's a king of a different kind. And so they claimed that he was a king trying to uh, trying to usurp or insurrect the Roman gover- government. And so they accused him of insurrection. But Pilate uh, thought that he seemed innocent. And so he sends him to another king of that time, Herod, who found nothing worthy of death. And so finally they brought Jesus back to Pilate and he was able to be threatened or manipulated into finally crucifying Jesus. But 
you see through the whole thing, Jesus says very few words. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't excuse any kind of behavior. He he stands there for the most part silent. When they ask questions, he responds to some of those questions, but he's not there to try to make a case for himself or defend himself or to get himself out of that situation because the situation he is in was preordained by God for your salvation and mine. As Kiki read earlier that he was the, the one lamb that would take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist came in preparation for the ministry of Jesus, and you'll remember that he, uh, many people were asking if he was the Messiah, and he said, I'm not. He said, behold the Lamb of God when he saw Jesus who, who takes away the sin of the world. It's upon that Lamb, not all the lambs that were sacrificed previously under the Jewish uh, ritualistic sacrifices. Those weren't the ones that would really take away sin. It was the, it was the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus himself, that would do that. And he stood there silently like a lamb before its shears. So he didn't respond to the mocking abuse, the passing people that shouted around him. And when they did take him to crucify him, we saw his dignity again. We saw him die with dignity as he was on the cross, he didn't curse his executioners. He didn't plead for his life. He didn't defend himself. He said almost nothing until the closing hours of his life, and he cried out to the Father, and then he gave up He gave up his last breath, and he died. And uh, that would be an interesting story to read a story about an ancient religious figure to whom that happened. That would be a great and moving martyr story, but that's not the end of the story for us. If that were the end of the story, we wouldn't be here today. I have no doubt about that, that we wouldn't be here today if that were the end of the story. Um, it's interesting that sometimes in, in cultures that we emphasize things like the death and we forget about the significance of the resurrection. The death of Christ is significant, but his resurrection is significant too. If his resurrection hadn't come, his death doesn't mean much to us. Eugene Nida, in one of his books about missions, says that, in uh, Guatemala, they have this elaborate Passion Week parade that takes place. It's conducted each year. And the high point of the, uh, the parade and the celebration is the crucifixion, which takes place on Friday. And the interesting thing is that the resurrection is only in, their, in, in the viewing of that celebration, a kind of aftermath or uh, anticlimax. And the people often after... Good Friday, they go home and they don't wait for the Good Sunday. Do you know what I mean? That what is Friday if it's not for the Sunday that follows? The resurrection is the center of early Christian preaching. Whenever, uh, wherever the early followers went, they preached that Jesus died for our sins, yes, but he rose again. That's quite a claim. They They claim that he died for our sins and that he rose again. They said this to Jewish listeners who knew the Old Testament scriptures, and they also said it to Gentile listeners who usually believed in many kinds of gods and often despised any idea of a bodily resurrection. Paul, when he went to Athens, he preached in kind of like what would have been the Harvard of the day. He, he gathered on Mars Hill or the Areopagus, and he talked to the intellectuals there, and he preached the gospel to them in, a, in an interesting way. He used their philosophy and he comes to the point of the end of his message, and he says that God will judge each of us, and he'll do so with the man that he raised from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection, many of them scoffed. 
thoughts, just as many people today, how can such a thing be? How can such a thing be? Uh, and uh, many disbelieved, some believed, some followed, some wanted to hear more. And the interesting thing is, why is it that today as we've gathered and uh, many places across this world, and uh, as we talked about a little bit ago, that he, uh, there's a legacy that that comes with following Jesus. And now we're 2,000 years removed and we're many, many thousands of miles removed from the place of that event and distance uh, historically. And why is it that we should find um, that we're following a Messiah from Galilee? That in all the options of early Palestine in that century, why is it that we should be following Jesus, somebody who was crucified by the Roman governor? It's, a, it's an interesting thing when we find out the stigma that was attached to the cross that Jesus should somehow overcome that. And the only explanation in my mind is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus' equality with God and his bodily resurrection are really kind of surprising revelations among Jewish disciples. If you think about it, many of them believe that the resurrection was something that would happen in the last day, that somebody should be resurrected in the middle of history like that didn't quite click, didn't quite make sense to them. The idea that Jesus should somehow be the Son of God and receive worship and praise just as the God that they worshiped in the Old Testament should, it's surprising that that would develop among the Jewish people from whom their emphasis is always on one God, one God. And uh, would uh, anything come from a place like that to begin with? We might have expected something to come out of Rome, Right? Rome was the power structure of the day, or Greece, that's the intellectual center of the day. Or even out of Egypt, where there was power and influence and many ideas. But I believe that the reason that uh, we talk about Jesus and not the gods of Egypt or the gods of Greek or the go- Greece or the gods of Rome, I think the reason that we're talking about Jesus today is because something significant happened, that Jesus was raised from the dead that he was raised from the dead, and that because he was raised from the dead, power came into people's lives as a result, and it's happened throughout history. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here, just like to lay out a few scriptures from uh, Paul's message on the resurrection. And the thing that we need to know, if you want to nerd out for just a moment here, let me give you some background to this. Paul here is trying to address the issue that's coming up in the Corinthian church. Some people are teaching that there is no resurrection of the body. Somehow this idea has crept into a church. Can you imagine that? And so they think there's no resurrection of the body. When, when they think of resurrection, uh, when Paul's using the word resurrection, he means resurrection of the body. When they talk about life after death, they're not talking about a resurrection. They're talking about our spirit leaving our body and us being bis- disembodied spirits somewhere. That's not the New Testament gospel. The New Testament gospel, yes, when we die, when we pass from this life, our spirit goes to be with God, okay? But there's a day coming in history when God will raise us with transformed bodies. And that's important because it ties in to the idea here of the resurrection. So Paul is using resurrection. He means resurrection of the body. The people Paul is writing to, they believe in life after death, But they're resisting the idea of a resurrected body because in Greek thinking, 
the goal was to escape the material world and be released into freedom. That was the thinking. And so Paul is combating this idea. Not They believed in life after death. They were being challenged with the idea of the bodily resurrection. And so Paul comes and addresses these things. And what he's saying is that what you believe is not quite right. The body will be raised at a time appointed by God in the future. And so he starts in talking about how Christ will be raised. Let me mention three points this morning. The first thing is that this uh, resurrection is good news. It's good news, okay? Good news. Gospel, me, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm sure you did. Gospel means good news. So today what we're proclaiming, what we're celebrating is good news. In fact, some people think you shouldn't even preach on the resurrection. You proclaim it. It's different that we're announcing that Jesus has been raised. We don't have to always try to prove it. We're announcing a reality that if it's believed in, can be transforming to people's life. This is good news. It's good news that Jesus died for our sins. We don't have to stand before God uh, bearing our own guilt anymore. The Bible describes Jesus as our advocate, the one that stands in our place, stands along beside of us and pleads our cause. He's the one who's taken our sin upon himself. And this is more profound than we we realize because one of the things that we struggle with psychologically in this world is the guilt from the things that we've done wrong. And people who don't suffer from guilt, they're either um, sociopathic or psychopathic, right? All of us, I think, I think it's fair to say, all of us, apart from Christ, struggle with guilt over past sins. And if not guilt, shame about them. The Bible describes 700 years before Jesus came that someone would come and bear our sins. I think it has to be one of the most beautiful pieces of poetry in all of Scripture. And it happens to be not just poetic, but but prophetic towards what Jesus will do. In Isaiah 53, who has believed our message and whom and whom has the and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of many people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor any deceit was in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And, and though the Lord makes and and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. 
and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and will divide his spoils uh, with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is what Christ has done, and this was prophesied of him 700 years before his coming. Isaiah foresaw this time, and the interesting thing is that in Jesus' day, many of the people who were looking forward to Messiah weren't looking for that kind of Messiah. They were looking for a conqueror that would come and do battle, some kind of general, some kind of ruler and leader that would come and get rid of the wicked people. What we didn't realize is we had a different kind of Messiah that was going to come, a kind of Messiah that would come and get rid of sin. He would take care of sin within us. And so when Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. So I'd like you to notice here that it's saying by this good news, this good news about the resurrection. He hasn't told us exactly what he's going to say yet, but he's preparing us for what's coming next, this message about Jesus being raised from the dead. And he says, it's by this gospel, it's by this gospel that you believed, it's by this gospel that you are saved. So this is good news. Jesus coming, him dying for our sins, him being raised to life. This is the good news by which we're saved. It's not because we're good people. It's not because uh, God likes us and we're, our mom said we're special. It's not any of those things. The thing that causes us to be saved is putting our confidence in the Savior who died and rose again. That's where salvation is. Salvation is relational. It's who you know. Are, are you with me? Like if I'm really good friends with one of the NBA players, he can probably get me into the stadium. Are you with me? Like if I want to go see the locker rooms and see the stadiums and meet the team and experience all that that life is like, if I know him, he's getting me in. Now, that's a silly illustration, but I want you to think about how in terms of salvation, it's not about just what we know, it's about who we know. And he's accomplished something for us. And because we know him and because he is life, we have life. In the Son, there's life. It's not that somehow we've believed something and now we have the uh, Apostles' Creed written on our heart. And when, G when God sees us at the judgment, he's going to see that we know the Apostles' Creed. Right? That's not, what, that's not how it happens. How it happens is we get into a living relationship with the living Lord. And he is life, and because he is life, we are in him, and we're brought into the kingdom through his life. Salvation is relational. This is good news, and it's good news that saves. The grave, it tells us, <laughs> it could not hold him. It could not keep him because he has life, and anyone who knows him gets to experience that life. All right, we've been, we've been hearing over the last, I hate to bring politics into it, but as soon as I say this, let's forget about all the politics, okay? We've been hearing a lot about fake news, right? This is real news, the real news, the real good news, okay? So 
I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in uh, politics too much. I think there's, there's more important things. Okay. Politics has its place. It's important, but there's something far more important than that. And there's kind of a rule of thumb that which lasts the longest is the most important. So when it comes to the things of God, here is some real news for a lot of people. It doesn't matter to them whether this is real or not. But listen to what Paul says. He goes on to say in verse uh, 3 here, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, primary. This is, this is the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. That he appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve, and after that appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters, at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. And he's going to talk a little bit about that in just a moment, but he mentions there the historical fact of the resurrection. In fact, if you follow his reasoning on down past where we're going to limit our passage today, you'll find a place where Paul says, if Christ is not raised, then our faith is empty. Are you hearing what I'm saying? If Christ, if the fact of the resurrection is not real, then our faith is fake. It's empty. It, it matters not. We don't create the reality by what we believe. We believe in the reality that is. Are you, are you hearing what I'm saying? The reality is that Jesus was raised. For a lot of people, it doesn't matter to them that Jesus really rose from the dead as long as the story of Jesus means something to them. Uh, we all have our own truth, they might say. But this isn't quite right. The gospel is not claiming uh, that this is good news because we believe it. It's not just a, what we might call a useful fiction, something that we made up in our minds that helps us to get through life because it's so bleak and dreary. Life can be bleak and dreary if we don't have hope. But I, what I would challenge us with today that is that this is not, this is not a useful fiction it's useful because it's true. It makes a difference in our life because it really happened. The gospel isn't making uh, the claim this is good news because we believe it. It's good news because something happened that changed everything. And this is not only good news for us, but for everyone. The Apostle Paul says that if it didn't really happen, our faith is useless or powerless. So unlike so many today, the Bible teaches us that faith must be placed in something that's worthy of it. Um, we don't just place our faith in something and, and then that becomes real to us. It's not exactly like that. It's that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And because he's risen from the dead, that's worthy of it. It's a strong and worthy frame to place our faith upon. Do you, you understand what I mean by that? that? That the gospel has always proclaimed itself as this is a real historical event. And if it happened then it is the centerpiece of history that somebody died and rose from the dead. That's the centerpiece of all of history. It has to be because that doesn't happen all the time. That happens once. And then it happens again, of course, at the end of, at the, end of the age. This is the real news that God has for us, that Jesus rose from the dead. You think uh, about airplanes, what causes airplanes to fly. Do we all get in the airplane and believe this is going to go up? Alan's a pilot. He knows that it's not just about believing this plane. I, I really believe this plane's going to go up, and somehow we're magically lifted on the wings of faith. 
faith has a place, and faith can do accomplish great things, but there are actual forces that are working on that. And I don't, I'm not going to get into all the scientific logistics because I just don't know it. But I know this, that when you move the plane fast enough and the wing is angled a certain way, air moves under it and pushes it up. And it's called lift, right? And so we don't fly on our planes by believing. I've sat on many planes by people who were not believing that that plane was going to get in the air. And somehow their lack of faith was overcome by the forces that were. Thank God. (laughs) Right? And if in the middle of the air I was ever struck with a thought, this cannot be real. This 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 can't be happening. We can't be up here in this heavy thing this far. I'm sorry if I'm sparking a little bit of fear in anybody's heart. But have you ever been in the middle of flight and go, looked out the window and go, whoa. Do you realize what's happening right now? <laughs> We're up here. And uh, it didn't change anything. I mean, we didn't even feel a bump of turbulence when I thought that. We still kept going because we, we were built on something solid, even though it's air. But at that moment, it's solid. You get where I'm going with this? It's not the most eloquent and thought-out example here. But I, I wonder how many kids myself included, have gotten hurt jumping off something with a cape, (laughs) thinking that cape's going to do the job, finding out that no matter how hard they believed, (laughs) gravity is real, right? And so we need to have our faith in something strong. You know, they say that climbers, and, and this happens on Everest sometimes, if you're not with an experienced guide, which you almost always are, I think, there. But, um... And it can happen on other mountains where there are snow-covered crevasses that if you're climbing and you don't recognize them, you can think or believe you're walking on something solid and break through and fall into a crevasse. And so it's not just about believing because some of the things that people believe in out there are like building castles in the sky. Okay, you, know what, you know what I mean by that? So we need to find something solid on which to base our lives. And I think the resurrection of Christ is that, and it's not just because we believe it that it's real, it's because it's real that we believe it. That Jesus rose from the dead is a fact of history. And uh, you might say, well, that just sounds ridiculous. There's a lot of legitimate historians who've who've, uh, written on the life of Christ. In fact, I don't know, I've not heard of any credible historian who doubts that Jesus existed. And there's one. And then when you start to examine the, the evidence of that, you find that there are many people, after having set out to disprove all of this, become believers. Um, there's a book by Frank Morrison, Who Moved the Stone. John Warwick Montgomery talks about uh, faith and fact and how this is based upon uh, evidence. Uh, you can read uh, Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, who was a legal journalist for the Chicago Tribune and set out to disprove all of this and in the end became a believer, a sound believer. And so I'm not here today to try to argue the case of that. Uh, but if you're interested and you're like, I'm, if, I, if it's true, I'll believe it and I'll follow. I just don't, I don't know enough. Okay? There are resources for that. Come see me. We can, we can talk about that. But uh, this is what I'm here today to do is to proclaim that this is, this is uh, 
real, a real event that happened based upon eyewitness testimony. And so it matters that Jesus rose from the dead because it's not just a useful story to help us get through hopeless lives. It matters that the tomb was really empty. And all the world's religions, of all the world's religions, I think we make the most outrageous claim. We do. We, we claim that Jesus, a man who's known to history, he died on a cross and on the third day he rose again. If it's not true, even, if, even though it is true, it's outrageous. Do you know what I mean by that? Outrageous just means, can you, can you believe this? <laughs> I mean, this is a pretty outrageous claim to be making. And we do. We believe the earliest uh, eyewitness testimonies, they say this is a fact of history. Without it, there is no gospel. There's no gospel without the resurrection. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that his message is of first importance. It was prophesied in the scriptures. We read some of this. He died for our sins, Isaiah 53. Just verse 5 um, is sufficient to show this. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Zechariah 12.10, they will look upon me whom they've pierced, and they'll mourn as for an only son. He died, he died for our sins. Okay? And then he was buried, and then it says he rose again. Look at your uh, verse there, verse, um, I think verse 4 and 5. Verse 4, and he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture, Psalm 16, verse 9 and 10, Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. And as you listen to the preaching of the Acts of the Apostles, Peter talks about this, and I, and I think maybe um, Stephen talks about this a little bit, that, that though David was writing this, David died, and he remained in the grave, and his body decayed. And so uh, the argument there is that David wasn't writing about himself. He was prophesying about Jesus who would come later and that God would not allow him to see decay in the grave. Verses 5 through 8, it shows that it was witnessed by the apostles. The Gospels, uh, interestingly enough, it doesn't hide the details that could prove embarrassing to the early church. Uh, when Jesus rose from the dead, the first ones that were on the scene, who were they? They were women. And and I don't feel this way, but in that day, women couldn't give testimony in court that was believable. It would be thrown out. Not because they couldn't give that kind of evidence, but because the men of that day didn't want to believe it. Okay, so that wasn't a credible witness. And yet, this is kind of an embarrassing fact in that day is that the women were the first ones to witness to the resurrection. And I think, in a way, God kind of dignifies women in doing that, don't you? And you know what? The women believed, and the men did not. They go back and tell them, and they're like, well, we're going to have to see it for ourselves. I don't know if we can trust you. It's a similar thing to sometimes what happens when a man says he knows the way. You know what I mean? In the car. And the wife says, well, we'll see about that. So, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. So that's kind of embarrassing in that day to the gospel story. And then the other thing that's embarrassing is that Jesus has told these guys over and over again that he's going to rise from the dead. Right? And do they believe? 
No. We're going to have to. Thomas even says, I will not believe. He's even heard from the other guys. I'm not going to believe unless I feel the nail prints in his hands. And so uh, that's not really, uh, that's not really um, complimentary to these guys who are supposed to be great men of faith. And so the gospel doesn't hide this, that it took a little bit more than that. Even the two on the road to Emmaus as they're walking along, um, they're talking to Jesus. They don't realize it's Jesus risen from the dead. They're talking with him, and he kind of rebukes them for how slow they are to believe, and and they're talking about it, and they said, well, some of our some of our ladies have said that he's risen, and, and people went there, and they saw the empty tomb, but they still didn't believe until Jesus sat down and he broke the bread with them, and their eyes were open in that moment. And so the, the point that I'm trying to make there is that there were eyewitnesses and the fact that when the eyewitnesses finally did believe what happened, there had already been some embarrassing things that had taken place prior to that. And notice in verses 5 through 8 here, all the people that are mentioned, Cephas is Peter, then the 12. He's talking about the disciples, minus Judas, of course. After that, he appears to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. Um, one of the arguments against the resurrection is that there was some kind of corporate uh, delusion that took place, like all these 500 people at the same time had uh, s- saw some kind of specter or had some kind of uh, delusion, and that just that just doesn't that doesn't happen. So he says there are up to 500 people, and then it mentions there his uh, brothers and sisters at the same time. Um, verse seven, he appeared to James, his brother. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Paul has a resurrection encounter with Jesus a little bit later in life. So he has that experience. And then it goes on to say many of whom of those brothers are still living when the Corinthian letters are written. So can you imagine that these believers could have gone to them and said, so what did you see? Uh, what happened when you saw Jesus after the resurrection? And there are people that were still alive that could have told and verified this is exactly what it looked like. And then we've seen this resurrected Jesus confirmed in the lives of millions of people since then. Myself included. This is a this is a, the beauty of the resurrected story is that it transforms our lives. Let me move quickly through this thought and then we'll come to something maybe a little more personal here at the end, but uh, this is the very confidence is that Jesus Resurrection vindicates all of his ministry as unique and God-approved. It demonstrates God's ability to turn things around. We prayed for that earlier. Lord, you're the God of dead ends. It doesn't look like it can get any worse for the followers of Jesus than that Jesus would be taken away and nailed to a cross and then turn up dead and buried. All of their hopes and dreams seem to have been buried with him. But on the third day, he rose again. And that demonstrates that God is not a God of tombs and dead ends. He's a God of life and living and hope and options, right? And it elevates living with hope and purpose. We can live with hope and purpose in this life, not because we're like, if you look at the, the other option, it's bleak. You know what the other option is? If we look at pure scientific materialism, this is the reason we believe, because that's bleak. We don't believe because we prefer one or the other. 
But I'm so glad, I'm, I'm con- convinced that the hopeful option is true. The other option is this, is that we live this life in misery, then we die. And we become warm food. And then in time, the sun slowly burns out and the world uses its energy and everything becomes nothing. And there's no one there to even remember there was a story at all. That's bleak. The other option is the option of hope. Jesus raised from the dead. He is the Lord of life, and there is life in him that is not derived from anything else. And he gives life to all. And this is already being played out in our lives today. Do you know that? That we don't, we, do, we don't own the air we breathe. The food that we eat is life borrowed from other things. The sun that we get, we didn't put it up there. We didn't launch it out there. It was there before us. This earth that we live on that's suitable for us to live, we didn't make it. We found ourselves here, blessed by God with all of these things. And life, and we get this illusion in the West, don't we, that the world is our oyster and we can do whatever we want. We can choose whatever thing we want. All of these options are open to us. When we step back and think about it, we didn't choose to be here. We didn't choose the family we're going to be a part of, what culture we come from, what language we speak. I mean, you can choose to learn another language, but your original, just think through where all of that goes. So much of life is derived from things that are not under our control. It goes back ultimately to our first parents and to God himself. And then the resurrection initiates a new kind of relationship with the living Lord. He's not a God who is dead that we can just go to a tomb somewhere and admire him. You know, like you can go to, uh, if you are a big Doors fan, you can go to Jim Morrison's grave in Paris and think about all the songs that he's written. Okay, We're not going to honor Jesus in that way. We honor him in a different way. He's not dead. He's living. We don't go to shrines. We serve him with our lives because he's a living Lord. And we walk in relationship with him. It's not like it is with other things because he's a living Lord. The third thing I want to mention here is that this life is, this is life-changing news. This is life-changing news. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. It says there, for I am the least of all apostles, and I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, the they is the apostles, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. This is life-changing news, and we can see it first in the Apostle Paul here as he describes this. It changed Paul from being a persecutor of the church, a doubter in Jesus, to being the biggest proponent of the Christian message apart from Jesus himself. He became so convinced of Jesus' resurrection that he preached it everywhere he went, through hardship, through imprisonment. Remember they locked him in the clink for a couple years, and then he went and he talked to the Roman governors, and he didn't, he didn't budge at all. He's like, you can lock me up for the rest of my life. You're going to get the same message, fellas. And he came out preaching the resurrection every single time they brought them before him. He preached through imprisonment under the threat of death and until he was ultimately killed for preaching Christ. I'm told that if you go to Rome, you can go to the place where they beheaded Paul 
for his apostleship. And to me, this shows something that's fascinating about the resurrection of Christ is that something happened and something changed in these guys. And you have to give credit to the fact that the Holy Spirit came and filled with boldness. But something transformed them that they would go from being scared to being those who would lay down their lives and put their own lives at risk to preach the gospel. Something changed in them. Something changed in the Apostle Paul that he would go from being a persecutor of the church who thought he was doing God a favor, getting rid of these scoundrelly Christians with their, their uh, heretical message to being the chief proponent and writer in the New Testament. He became that convinced. Notice in verse 9 he talks about his past. His past is, even though I'm the least, I don't deserve, I persecuted the church. That's his past, okay? So we all have a past. Do you know that? We're not living in this timeless void. We have a past. We deal in past, present, and future. and uh, We have a past to us. And it's my understanding from the Bible that all of us have a sinful past, every one of us. Okay? Even if you're raised in church and you gave your heart to Jesus at age three, we have a, we have a sinful nature that God has to deal with. And so we have a past. And Paul says, I have a past. This is what I was like. But then he mentions his change, his change in verse 10. His change is, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God's grace found me. God's grace rescued me. God's grace transformed me into the kind of person that I am today is what Paul is saying. And I know that there are many people here that if you knew what they were like in their former life, you would say, that can't be true of them. Because that's not the person I know. And they would say, by God's grace, I am what I am. It's not because of anything I've done. But I know people here in this room that they are unrecognizable from their prior life. I've heard stories, and I can't imagine that it's the same person. Because I know what they're like now. And God can do the same thing in every one of us. He'll transform us from glory to glory into his likeness if we'll trust him. There's a change that takes place because this news is life-changing. Then I'd like you to notice verse 10, his zeal. I worked harder than all of them. Uh, Paul, I don't know. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so uh, he's not being proud or boastful. (laughs) Are you with me? Like, remember when um, Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses was the meekest man alive? Right? Like, if Mo, like that takes a certain level of humility even to write that. Lord, you know what they're going to think about me if I write this. Uh, that takes a certain humility to put yourself out there in such a way that, you know, people are, may misunderstand that. Paul writes here, by the grace of God, uh, I am what I am. And he says, I've worked harder than all of them. I've worked harder than all of them. Now he's saying that this changed me. It changed my focus. I put all of my zeal into stamping out this movement, all of my efforts, all my sweat, all my toil into that. And now I've put all of my sweat and toil and tears and everything into seeing the gospel advance. So this shows a change of direction in life. You can see that in what we're willing to work for. Folks, that can happen with us too. Like we're, we may be working for everything that we want in this life to fulfill the American dream. And then Jesus comes along and transforms us. And we realize it's not about the American dream. It's about the Jesus dream. What does he have in mind for us? 
and we start to put all of our our efforts and things into things that may not show an immediate profit on the profit line, but it matters for eternity because the things which matter most are the things that last the longest. And we've changed our mind because we've come into contact with the risen Lord. This is what Paul has experienced, but he's quick to give credit in verse 10. And this is his confidence by the grace of God. It wasn't just me working. It was the grace of God in me. Verse 10, this is his confidence is that, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be doing effort, but I realize that the effort here is empowered by the grace of God to accomplish this. It's not just me at work. It's God working in me. It's God working through me. And he does work hard, but he realizes God's at work in that circumstance. And so whatever uh, he can accomplish, he realizes he can't do it on his own, that there's, there's nothing good that he can ultimately do unless God is in it. Okay. So there's credit given to that, and that's his confidence. In the past, he might have put confidence in his own goodness and his own ability. Philippians chapter 3, where he talks about all the things that were to his profit, all the things that he could put on the trophy shelf, his own righteousness, his pedigree, uh, his zeal for stamping out the church, all of the things that he could say, look, I'm the best at all these things. Now he's saying, I'm counting all that loss. It's Christ. It's Christ. And then I'd like you to notice his message that this, this gospel, this gospel of the resurrection, verse 11, this is what we preach. And now Paul expands it beyond just me. This is what I preach. This is what Peter preaches. This is what John preaches. This is what the message of the church is. We're all preaching Jesus has raised from the dead, and we're all laying down our lives for that. That, to me, that's a powerful witness to the resurrection of Jesus, that those who knew him best, most of them, they died a martyr's death. And they didn't relent with their message. It's powerful. It's life-changing. And it'll change your life if you'll trust him. How could the resurrection change our lives? I think first it could change our disposition from disillusionment to hope. That moment when the two on the road to Emmaus, whoever they were, we know Cleopas is one of them. His name's Cleopas. It's a great name if you're thinking about naming a boy. Cleopas, let me recommend that to you. That uh, he's got Cleopas and maybe Cleopas' wife or another sidekick that's going along with them, and they, they're talking to Jesus. And they're the, they're the saddest sacks in all of that road because they can't imagine how there could be any hope after their Messiah was crucified. They'd heard rumors he's been raised. They heard about the empty tomb. We know that from Luke 24. They heard about the women's testimony. <laughs> but it's interesting how all of the evidence can mount, but until we believe it or come into contact with the risen Christ ourselves, that it's just facts that don't make a difference in our life until we mix it with faith. Are you with me? So I'm not saying that faith should be in just anything. I'm saying when you find something solid, put your faith in. Put your faith in it. Jesus is raised from the dead. But their disposition, when they, they came to terms with the fact that this is Jesus, it changed from disillusionment to hope. Like they were sad. They didn't know where life was going. That perhaps were directionless in some ways. But then they met Jesus and it changed their direction to hope. And it will for you and me. And then the second thing, it changed perspective from the temporal to the eternal. I've been laboring that point, so I'm going to leave that there. And then the third is, it can illuminate Christ as the one true hope for humanity. 
What other hope is there for humanity apart from that? Medicine, when it does its best, can only get us so far. Education can only get us so far. Science can only get us so far. Are are you with me? And if we hung on long enough, we might be able to see the sun burn out. (laughs) That's bleak. But there's something else that offers, that Christ offers us. He offers us a new heaven and a new earth. The resurrection can take away the fear of death and replace it with faith in the living one. And it can lead to the restoration of life, to God-centered living. And I, I would challenge you to think about this. If we all lived the way God wanted us to, how would the world be different? You want to start enumerating things, think about how our police force could be reduced. If everybody lived for Jesus and did what he commanded, we could probably do away with a lot of our insurance. If you're in insurance, you might have to get a new job because people would just do the right thing. Like if we all live for Jesus the way that we should, we probably wouldn't have to lock our doors at night. We'd have peace in families. We could love one another the way that we're supposed to. And I don't know that we'll ever get there in this life, but there is a life coming where all of those things will be a reality. The lion will lay down with the lamb, and there will be a true peace, and it'll be the way God intended it to because, I don't know if you know this, but we're not living in the world that God created. Okay, We, we are living in a God-created world, but it's not the way he created it. Do you see the difference? We've chosen some things that have taken us on a detour away from him, and so there is sin and there is death, and there is sorrow, and there's pain, and there's abuse, and there's ugliness, and there's meanness. And it's not God's will. But if we really put our faith in the resurrection and live the lives God wanted us to, it would restore us to Christ-centered living. I use the word that it could. These things could do that because it's conditional. A lot of people have heard about the resurrection who never committed their lives to the resurrected one. It changed me. I was a shy kid, grew up in Kansas without, I didn't have real direction in life. And my parents took me to church every week. And I didn't like it most of the time. I was bored with it. And um, I remember waking up and feeling an ache in my heart, a loneliness as a kid. Something is missing. I wouldn't have been able to articulate that, but I just knew something was missing. Something wasn't right. There was an ache, a loneliness that was there. And I didn't realize till later I had an encounter with Christ when I was 17 between my junior and senior year of high school. And I was at a conference, and I felt God tugging at my heart with some things, and I responded to it. One of the things that held me back for so long was there was an idol in my life, and this is the way it often happens. is There's something that if we come to Christ that we've got to let go of. Are you with me? For me, I was concerned too much about what people thought. And that was probably the key to my shyness. I'm still a little bit shy. I still care about what people think. But that's not my Lord. See the difference? And so uh, that thing was bothering. So I think the Holy Spirit must have told me this. Luke, you've got one year left with these people, and you'll probably never see them again. And I found freedom in that. I'm like, all right, I'm going for it. And I went all in. Bible studies, 
went to church whenever I could. If the ladies were having a ladies' fellowship, I wanted to be there for the right reasons. Like I just wanted to be where God was working and God was doing something. You know what I mean? <laughs> so <laughs> the Lord changed my heart. And not long, not long after that, he called me to be a pastor. And that, if you knew me, still knowing me, you may realize how ridiculous this really is. By the grace of God only. You know what I mean? Shy kid. I was even so shy. I didn't want to talk to my parents. How are you going to preach? Sometimes when I get into the pulpit, it's like when Peter looks out at the waves, you know, and he starts to sink. I look out at the people. I'm like, whoa, what is going on here? But I'm telling you that God has a way of directing our lives. And I would have never known the fulfillment and joy of knowing him. What I found is when I surrendered to Christ, that aching that was in my heart went away. It was filled with peace and joy. I had come home. The missing peace was put into place. God did that. I met the living Lord, and it transformed my life. And miracles began to take place. Some of them, not like, um, you know, ever raised the dead or anything. But uh, we, we saw things that shouldn't necessarily happen, happen. And God was doing it. Because we put our faith in Jesus, he, ch- he changes us, He transforms us. It's life, it's life-changing news. In our home groups this last um, Sunday, one of the questions was, um, do you think that it would have been easier or harder to follow Christ if you lived in His day, and why? And I, I think this is a really interesting question, uh, and it surprised me at what some of the answers were. When I was young, I always thought if I had lived in the time of Jesus, it would be so much easier to follow him because I could see him. Because I, I realize now that my problem was that I heard these stories, but I had a really hard time picturing those things really happening. I'm past that now. I, I can see all of those things happening. The thing for me, and, and here's what was interesting, is that when people answered that question, uh, one guy said, one, one, one of our kids said, I think it would have been easier to live back then. And here's the the sweetest thing, because Jesus would have been there to pray for me. That was beautiful. Others said, I think now, because one one of the biggest things was there's not the persecution in in our situation that there was back then for following Jesus. There wasn't the cost. And others said, because we have the Holy Spirit, we can can trust him. Do you know in Jesus' day, it wasn't easy to follow Christ? Do you know in our day it's not easy to follow Christ? So it's an academic question, and at the end of the day it doesn't matter because you're here for such time as this. But the real issue for me is that it's not whether we can believe that events happened or not. Because the two on the road to Emmaus had some grasp of the facts. The real question is, are we willing to commit our lives to the living Lord? That's the question. Will we commit our lives to the living Lord? And so I, I want to extend that question to you. It's, it's not so much that uh, we just grasp these facts about the resurrection. You can, you can know the creeds. You can be able to recite the creeds. And we can still live and die without Jesus because it's relational. We have to come to a place of commitment where we say to him, Lord, if you are who you said you are, then I'm committing my whole life to you. It's in that commitment that things change. 
The Bible talks about people in the Old Testament having observed things and receiving the word of the Lord, but it didn't profit them because they didn't mix it with faith. See, the faith is this. The faith isn't just believing extraordinary things. The faith is believing in the person of Jesus and trusting him, trusting him with your lives. Okay? Oftentimes we think of faith as believing impossible things. It's not, it's not always that. Faith is, in the Christian context, is trusting in the person of Jesus. So we can believe all of those things and not walk in relationship with him because we don't trust that he's going to do what's best for our life. How many of us would say, don't raise your hand to this because I think it's probably true of most of us, that it's hard to relinquish control to somebody else. Okay? You can believe all the facts about them, even some extraordinary things, but when it comes down to letting them drive, <laughs> you know what I mean? Anybody here have a problem? Don't raise your hand with somebody else driving you. You want to be the driver because you're in control. You think you are. Okay? This is what that kind of faith is about, is letting Jesus be in control. Can you trust him for that? He's the risen Lord. He's shown himself as qualified through his leadership and history. He's wise. We understand that. We've seen him in Scripture do the miraculous. We've seen him raised from the dead. He is the one appointed to be our Lord. And I challenge you today to trust him with your lives. Stand with me if you would. And thanks for your attention today. At some point, uh, the Apostle Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road. I think uh, probably most scholars would put that about two years after the resurrection. Jesus encounters Paul, and Paul encounters Jesus on the Damascus Road. Let's call it. 32 AD, Paul meets Jesus, and his life is transformed. He trusts him. He trusts him with all that he is. There's faith right there. So the power to be transformed comes from believing, not only believing the gospel, but by believing the Lord of the gospel. It's all included. We believe, we trust the Lord of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all who will believe, the Jew and the Gentile both. So today, could I ask you, have you ever put your confidence in Christ? Maybe the Holy Spirit's been stirring your heart. I think possibly today there's some here that you've got a missing piece like I had. And you're wondering what that is, why that loneliness, why that ache. Why is it that we can't just seem to get it together? The missing piece in all of our lives is Jesus. This has been the echo of the church throughout the ages that without you, our hearts are restless and they're restless till it finds its place in you. We need him. I want to invite you today, if you've not met Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've not welcomed him in, if you've not put your confidence in him and let him be Lord of your life, he died for your sins. This is an all-inclusive package. It's not Savior or Lord, it's Savior and Lord. Will you trust him with your life? If you're doing that, you're trusting him that he's covering your sins, that he's covering for your eternity that he has good plans for you in this life, that 
to walk in relationship with you and day-to-day stuff. We trust him. If you're ready to, to do that today, just say, Lord, be merciful to me. I've sinned against you, and I'm putting my, my life in your hands. I'm trusting you. Make that your personal prayer today, and if you do, God's going to meet you in that. The power to transform your life will come in and begin. And I'd like you to do one more thing. If you've prayed a prayer like that, would you let somebody know about it? Somebody that you trust that will pray with you and help you through it. If you don't know of anybody, find me, and we'll get you connected with somebody that can help walk with you through the first steps of following Jesus. There are others that are here today that you've been, you're believing in the facts of the story. But somewhere along the way, you've kind of let go of the, the walk with him. Would you come back? Would you come back to Jesus today and pursue him again with all of your heart? You've been away, and it's been lonely, and you've known the road is right to, to turn back to him, but let me echo what I think the voice of the Spirit is saying to you. Come back to Jesus. Stop running. Run to him. He's, he's there to receive you and welcome you. Just pray a prayer like this. Lord, I've been away, and I want to come home and walk with you again in closeness. Would you restore that which has been taken? Thank you, Jesus. Maybe there are others, you're, you're fighting a battle and you, you know that uh, God is the God of impossibilities, but it's hard to see that in the midst of the situation you're in. Would you call out to him today and say, Lord, here's my impossibility. I give it to you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.